right, as we start uh, segment C, where we usually uh, reserve our obituary columns, we note the passing of the man who hit those high notes on the classic Gonna Fly Now theme to the Rocky movies, Maynard Ferguson. The celebrated trumpeter and band leader known for his blasting high notes, clarion tone, and wailing ensembles died last Wednesday in a Ventura hospital of kidney and liver failure. He was 78. Ferguson became famous in the early 50s with the Stan Kenton Orchestra and went, out, went on to front a series of popular bands that featured a slew of rising jazz stars. Unlike some band leaders, Mr. Ferguson, who scored pop hits with songs like MacArthur Park and the Rocky you just heard, was not an egotist who hogged the solo space. Said a fellow trumpeter, he promoted other musicians in the band. He always featured talented musicians, even if it were a trumpet player who could play faster or louder than him. Actually, there never was anybody who could play louder. Ferguson was famous for hitting stratospheric pitches with extraordinary focus and power. Remember first hearing about Maynard Ferguson when I entered the Webster Emerson dorms as a freshman here at this great institution. My roommate had several of his albums and I got acquainted with the music, which uh, did impress me with its stratospheric pitches and extraordinary focus. You may have noticed in this program we sometimes talk about, uh, you know, what everyone else is talking about, and a lot of times we don't. Uh, in the last week, since we came to you on last Thursday, down in Hollywood, they held the Emmy Awards. Let's devote what we think is an appropriate uh, uh, amount of time to talk about the Emmy Awards. Okay, that's it. Hope we didn't belabor the subject. America has been fascinated by this story about this apparently uh, pedophile, deranged individual who's been brought back from Thailand after claiming that he's the person responsible for the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey. The guy's story never seemed to make a heck of a lot of sense, and, and lost in the background of all this media feeding frenzy were the fact that family members were saying, you know, he was at home when that murder happened. He couldn't be in two places at once. I noticed that story surfaced on Google. I went looking for it, and it was lost to follow-up. I couldn't find it until many days later. The DNA evidence came out and said it exonerated this guy. Charges were dropped. And, oh, yeah, by the way, it appears that uh, the family photos show that he couldn't have been in two places at once. I suppose in the meantime, they sold a lot of commercial airtime on TV and, uh, you know, on the radio and newspapers. In a uh, similar story, which is extraordinarily depressing and yet extraordinarily hopeful in its own way, is the fact that I noticed that the Chronicle covered in the Bay Area an evening vigil that took place in Berkeley, where several women turned out to commemorate what would have been the 15th birthday of Abir Kasim Hamza. This is the girl we've talked about on this program who was raped and murdered by four U.S. soldiers in Iraq. This is a huge story in Iraq. Not to minimize the tragedy of the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey, an innocent girl in, in, in Colorado, but the story in Iraq reverberates much more profoundly in the media of the Middle East and the world media, and it should. And I thought it was encouraging to see that people in the United States were commemorating her loss.
In future installments of this program, we're going to talk about the case of uh, the 20-something-odd people murdered in Haditha and the case they talked about on NPR yesterday about Marines grabbing a guy when they were angry about losing one of their own and basically executing him and afterwards planting evidence that he'd been setting up explosive devices by leaving a shovel on the scene of the crime and an AK-47. We're encouraged somewhat by the fact that these cases are being talked about in some aspects of the media and that apparently something is being done about it. It's not being buried, and I think this is what separates us from a lot of other nations. Or at least it should. We mentioned a couple of weeks back the furor over the supposed alteration of photographs taken of the um, Israeli bombardment of Lebanon. It was noted by some on the web in an accusatory fashion that, uh, you know, perhaps children's stuffed toys were being placed on the scene of burned out buildings to add, uh, add more emotion to the photographs. We spoke on that show with Leila Anani, a Lebanese woman, or a Lebanese American woman who was there at the time, who witnessed exactly that tableau in reality. In the, uh, in the context of simulated photos, it'd be worth mentioning uh, the passing last week of Joe Rosenthal, the legendary World War II photographer who won the Pulitzer Prize and international acclaim for his soul-stirring picture of the World War II flag raising on Iwo Jima. He passed away in Novato at age 94. What's not so well known about that legendary photo is that it was a recreation of the initial flag raising on Iwo Jima. Apparently nobody was there with a camera for the original event, so they did it again. Does that make it invalid? We would argue no. If someone takes one column of smoke coming up over a burned out uh, building in Beirut and makes it into three columns of smoke, does that render the photograph invalid? Well, it shouldn't have been done, but the basic thrust of the photograph that you have a building burning in Beirut due to an Israeli airstrike remains the key point of the photo. The key point of the photo on Iwo Jima was that brave young Americans were doing what young men always do in uniform, putting their lives on the line to fight and try to prevail. Anyway, Joe Rosenthal's photo was an instant classic and is the best-known combat photo of World War II. Some consider it to be perhaps the most famous photograph ever taken. All right, to change the subject rather radically, we have uh, an item from Kimberly Geiger, Chronicle Sacramento Bureau, which we should make note of. California Republicans and moderate Democrats joined forces last week to approve a bill that would prevent local governments from banning genetically modified crops. The bill, SB 1056 by Senator Dean Floritz, passed the Assembly 46 to 19 and uh, is backed by the California Farm Bureau Federation and large agribusiness concerns such as Monsanto. This comes in response to moves by Marin, Mendocino, Santa Cruz, and Trinity counties to ban bioengineered crops. These bans prompted Senator Florence to introduce legislation that would give the state exclusive control over the regulation of field crops. Said Rebecca Spector, a supporter of the bill and spokeswoman for the Center for Food Safety, If there's strong state regulation that adequately protects farmers, the environment, and consumers, there should be no need for local initiatives. Well, I don't know much about the Center for Food Safety, but I'll bet 50 bucks 
they are funded by the agribusiness interests previously mentioned in this report. What do you think about that? If citizens here in Davis, here in Sacramento, here locally want to enact a legislation that's more stringent than the state, should they be prohibited from doing so? Just another reason for you to let us know your mind at info at Radio Parallax. Drop us a line. We mentioned a few months back that uh, civil rights leader Andrew Young had been hired by Walmart to promote uh, sales, presumably in the African-American community. Well, it appears that Walmart's... (laughs) Efforts to help improve its public image took a downturn, and they, in fact, had to let Andrew Young go after he was quoted as saying that Jewish, Korean, and Arab merchants have ripped off black shoppers for years. Well, I don't know if you noticed this story. All, all the hubbub about the Makaka remark by, uh, by Senator George Allen of Virginia. This one kind of was given a pass, but in an interview... Published uh, last week in the Los Angeles Sentinel newspaper, Andrew Young was asked whether he's concerned that Walmart forces mom-and-pop stores to close. Mr. Young, who we we remind you, was the former United States ambassador to the United Nations, a true diplomat, then responded by saying, Well, I think they should run the mom-and-pop stores out of my neighborhood. But you see... Those are the people who have been overcharging us, selling us stale bread and bad meat and wilted vegetables. And they sold out and moved to Florida. I think they've ripped off our communities enough. First it was Jews, then it was Koreans, and now it's Arabs. Well, he said Arabs. Very few black people own these stores. Actually, I don't know. Maybe he did say Arabs. But to his credit, the former U.N. ambassador then said... (laughs) that said the remarks were completely and utterly inappropriate and, quote, contrary to everything I've dedicated my life to, unquote. It appears, uh, nevertheless, Walmart's not taking him back. This might be a good time to quote from uh, the the op-ed piece of Ruben Navarrete, who writes for the San Diego Union-Tribune. His column regularly appears in the Sacramento Bee. And a couple weeks back, he had a commentary that was titled, Blacks Should Embrace, Not Snip At, Journalists' Message. Mr. Navarrete opened by saying, A few years ago, my friend Juan Williams told me he thought we had something in common, namely how those who represent our communities, or claim to represent them, view us with suspicion and resentment. In interviews with Hispanic members of Congress, The National Public Radio's senior correspondent and Fox News commentator said he had detected that some of them were uneasy about me and much of what I write. He said it reminded him of how much the members of the Congressional Black Caucus felt about him. He goes on to say that he's he's sure that Juan Williams will be trusted less by this community after coming out with a book entitled Enough, The Phony Leaders, Dead-End Movements, and Culture of Failure that are undermining black America and what we can do about it. Said Navarrete, the book is a good read, but it's also a good deed, and you can bet it won't go unpunished. He goes on to say, as you can guess from the title of his book, Williams has had a belly full of African Americans acting as their own worst enemy. He's tired of them not having good leadership and instead settling for professional grievance brokers, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, the Reverend Al Sharpton, etc., who misinform, mismanage, and miseducate the African-American community by refusing to articulate established truths about what it takes to get ahead, strong families, education, and hard work, 
and who do all this for their own financial and political benefit because keeping people weak is a way to keep them dependent on their, quote, leaders, unquote. Well, we agree with Ruben Navarrete. We agree with Juan Williams that, uh, you know, some, some difficult truths need to be articulated. When Bill Cosby, in May 17, 2004, lobbed a few grenades, people were incensed. At least certain black leaders were incensed. Cosby talked about dropout rates, out-of-wedlock births, drug abuse, high rates of incarceration, and other forms of self-defeating behavior that plagues the African-American community and how no one seemed to be doing anything about it. In fact, said Navarrete, Cosby was criticized not because what he said wasn't true, but because he aired dirty laundry and said publicly things that many African-Americans talk about only behind closed doors. Good, uh, Good column. We'd recommend you look it up on the web and read it in its entirety. As a further comment on on the difficulties of black people, I was stunned to see in The Economist last week a picture of a banknote from Zimbabwe showing how 100,000 Zimbabwe dollars in June bought a loaf of bread, and now it's considered just about worthless. When I was in Zimbabwe... uh, Something like 17 years ago, the, the exchange rate was something like 14 Zimbabwe dollars to one, something like that. That uh, wonderful and still promising African nation is being ruined by the efforts of its dictator, Robert Mugabe. And we're going to talk about that in future programs. Our, we want to thank our fellow public affairs host, uh, Dr. Andy Jones, for volunteering enthusiastically to discuss William Butler Yeats's poem. The Second Coming, which a lot of people are talking about, given the current state of the world, but uh, we did not move with sufficient speed to make that happen on today's show. We'll get to it, though. And we're happy to report that uh, James Bamford, the distinguished author of The Puzzle Palace and Body of Secrets, as well as the excellent article we refer you to on our website about the upcoming possible war with Iran, Uh, He's responded to our emails, and we expect to have him on the show sometime in September. We are very much looking forward to that. We also expect to bring you author Mark Anderson, author of Shakespeare by Another Name, the biography of Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, the man who was Shakespeare, in September. We're out of time. Our thanks to Sean Mitten, our sports correspondent. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next Thursday at 5 p.m. In the meantime, stay tuned for Todd. Could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms.